Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Peoples and Things, where we explore human life with technology. I'm Lee Vinsel. Oh man, there are so many nifty and scenic roads into the book we're covering in today's episode. Got my little map out here. Let's see here. Which route should we take? Oh, look, here's one marked provocative. Is that is that French or something? Provocative. It has a ring to it, doesn't it? Yes, let's go that way. My experience in life is that there are some alleyways in academia where you find very juvenile conceptions of corporate power. You know, I mean, the kind of folks who assume corporations are evil and are to blame for a lot of things in the world. But then you ask them a question like, "Okay, but have you done any work to examine the structure of the industry around company X or or, you know, like looked at any basic markers of its financial health or even like read its annual reports and you receive blank stares. And then within that set of dark alleys and oh my God, dear listeners, the darkness I brave just for you, just for you. I won't even go into it. It's just so frightening and troubling. Within that set of dark alleys, There's a smaller set of even darker places where people act like corporations have a lot of control over what we think, like we are all dupes for advertisements or something. And the people who make up corporations have definitely done some terrible things in the world and throughout history. I mean, that's what my first book was about. And many multinational corporations have like neo-colonialist relationships with poor nations around the world. But sometimes you bump into the presumption that corporations can just push their products on local populations in countries other than their home ones. And that just doesn't seem right uh, in many cases. I think there are many interesting things to learn from historian Paula Della Cruz Fernandez's book, Gendered Capitalism, Sewing Machines and Multinational Business in Spain and Mexico, 1850 to 1940. Cruz Fernandez wears several different hats in the world. She works for the Business History Conference, the History Department at the University of Florida, and is co-editor-in-chief of the New Books Network in Espanol. And 
Uh, as you know, we too are part of the New Books Network, so it's a nice little collection, connection to make here. Cruz Fernandez's book is neat in many ways, but what I really like is how she shows that selling sewing machines was not a top-down process by which an American corporation forced its products on unwilling consumers, but a complex development that involved collective entrepreneurship, and most importantly, the dreams, ideals, and efforts of women who worked with sewing machines in the home. The book raises larger questions about how we think about processes of technology adoption in different cultures and about the relationship between corporations and consumers. I hope you enjoy our conversation. It was a lot of fun for me. And hey, get excited. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I love your podcast. I love the conversations you have. So it, it is my pleasure to be here. Well, thanks so much. Uh, so Gendered Capitalism is a, a neat book. When you explain it to strangers, uh, what do you say it's about? And what were you trying to do with it? Thank you. That's a good question. I t- usually talk about first about the women about and also about sewing and embroidery, right? Uh, because that was my mm-hmm. initial um, point of research or topic of research. I was very interested in the lives, um, the economic lives, but also the cultural and social lives of women that sew not only for um, market purposes for, uh, for uh, to get income, but also um, just because, right? Just because they mm-hmm. were uh, mothers, because they were grandmothers, <laughs> because they were girls mm-hmm. uh, in in um, in Spain and Mexico. So that was my initial um, my initial point of entry. And um, when I started looking more into it, when I started graduate school, I realized um, that technology, right, and the sewing machine uh, was very important for. Uh, for all this variety of activities. So not only, again, for women that had uh, sewing and uh, embroidery as as their um, trade, but also for those that were uh, in the home. And the more I looked at uh, at them, I I saw Singer, right? I saw Singer over and over, Mm -hmm. and I saw Singer being in every home I looked at, but also going back very um very late so the oldest um sewing machines i i could see were always singer and um uh, or how you we say it in spanish la, la singer um uh-huh. and uh and so there there were other brands of course but singer was kind of the also the term for sewing machine right so if i ask someone do you have wow. a sewing machine oh yes i do have a singer so it wasn't, oh, yes, uh-huh. I have a máquina de coser. No, I had a singer. So um, that uh, and, of course, then uh, being in graduate school at uh, Florida International University with uh, amazing scholars like uh, Kenley Partito, who actually gave a talk uh, in, my, in another class about sources and 
I don't know if coincidentally he talked about sewing machines and I said, well, of course I have, I have to look at that. And then of course, Mira Wilkins, who was also teaching when, when I was in grad school. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I think that, you know, so often historians of technology and business historians, they either start with the machine or they start with the firm, right? As their, their center of interest. But I think, and I think I saw this kind of come out in your acknowledgements mm -hmm. uh, section too. You really were interested in sewing and then kind of like, you know, backed yourself into the business history or something like that. Is that right? That's right. I mean, I, um, again, in grad school, I, I understood and I learned how the firm is this kind of back structure that that kind of gives shape to all these. Um, I understood it as uh, giving shape to all these economic uh, um, activities, um, yeah. and in the also in the global uh, in the global um, economy, and that was very important to me. So I very rapidly understood how I had to look at the firm. I had to understand yeah. why. Um, sewing was such a global and um, and um, such a global activity, and also performed by, by women in in the places I was looking at. Um, I had to look at to under, to explain it. I had to look at the firm. I I, I needed yeah. to see <laughs> what the structure and who had managed that um, uh, the organization for uh, for sewing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have a similar story in that I did not expect I would be a business historian when I grew up. I, I thought I, I was wanted to be a professor, but I business historian. But when you study capitalism and technology, firms are you know they're important. It turns out when when your 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 early his your early interest in sewing were you were you kind of interested in a kind of like cultural history perspective or how were you thinking about sewing early on? Yes, I was definitely uh, looking uh, again uh, at um, women's work uh, perspective. Yeah. I was doing uh, as a as an undergrad and as a anime in in Spain. Back in Spain, I did lots of courses on the history of women, women's studies, uh -huh. and one uh, of my um, advisors also at FIU was uh, Aurora Morcillo, who was a very important historian of gender and. Um, and women in Spain and about Spain. So for I me, see. it was all about, but I, again, I wanted to, there was work uh, already done about this um, transition to industrial sewing and how the sewing machine had um, uh, made hundreds uh, of women and thousands of women of women go to the, fab, to the factory and work. Uh, so for me, that was not the, the, uh, my interest, right? I, I was more interested in that sphere and that space of the home, uh, which yeah. had been really uh, on the margins of studies of the firm, for sure. But also, yeah. um, on it was kind of a given, I even in um, in labor history, right? So, so, okay, so we know that there are women that and there is this uh, gender ideologies uh, of domesticity that are there, but but we are but we are interested on in the women that went out. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I yeah, wanted yeah. to stay in and in the home <laughs> and kind of uh, bring the home up and and elevate it as a space where things happen, but um, mm -hmm. and definitely as a space that can that gave back to the corporation and really structured the corporation yeah. in this in this case. 
Yeah, well, I think you're, you know, do that very successfully. So I'm out, well, kind of spell out what the perspective you bring kind of does for business history as, as we go along. Um, can you, uh, can you put Singer's history in context for us? So how, you know, not, Singer's a very important company in the history of technology, you know, history of technology and business history, the history of mass production, like David Hounschel's book from American System to Mass Production covers it, Chandler's Visible Hand. It's an, you know, it's an important story, but not all of our, not all the listeners will be familiar with it. So can you just kind of spell out a kind of brief history of how it kind of starts up and what it was up to initially? Absolutely. So <clears throat> you're right. The, uh, the Singer Sewing Machine uh, company is a textbook, right? Example of both yeah. the um, the modernization, the process of uh, modernizing the firm or the corporation in the uh, second half of the 19th century in the U.S., uh, but also it's a textbook for a multinational uh, for the I. Um, the idea of the multinational company, and so so Singer started um, was incorporated in 1863 in the United States, so it's headquartered in the United States and continues to be headquartered in the United States for over a century. Okay, so after um, the 1960s, there are some. Um, movement towards you know it gets divided and it gets sold and still there are offices in 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 the united states but it's not what we see as the uh very centralized vertically integrated uh corporation that it was so in 1863 uh, it's incorporated and by then uh, singer had lots of um of competition in the u.s uh it had yep. You know the home sewing company. It had how sewing company, uh, sewing yeah, sewing uh, machines company. It had um, Wheeler and uh, Wilson, who which is actually acquired by Singer later on. So it's very much um, a part of a sewing industry that is booming in the United States. Uh, but starting in the eighteen sixties, eighteen seventies. Uh, it, it is the only corporation, it is the only company in the U.S. that it starts uh, going out, going abroad very uh, rapidly. So other companies are um, exporting sewing machines, right? And we have data on that. Um, and so they just export uh, like any other good. But um, the Singer Sewing Machine Company opens a factory in, um, in Scotland already by the 1870s and then it has other um, factories operated directly by uh, the U.S. headquarters um, <clears throat> in Germany and then in Russia at the end of the century, of the 19th century. Um, and again, everything vertically integrated under one roof, which is, uh, which is in New York and um, mm -hmm. So it also has, uh, and this is very um, specific to Singer, it's a very centralized and organized um, system of distribution. A system of distribution that is both salesmen, but also stores, right? So it's not only salesmen mm -hmm. going out, uh, knocking on doors and selling uh, only, sewing, only Singer sewing machines, um, but also stores that are only Singer and that are staffed by only singer employees that I can only sell singer. And why I say that is important because um, 
that gives Singer a lot of control in terms of yeah. marketing, in terms of um, of um, also the message that they want to uh, convey with the sewing machine and their yeah. advertising, but also in terms of prices, in terms of how they sell the sewing machine, they could sell on credit, which others don't didn't really uh, get to do, or at least mm-hmm. that much. Um, because they could do it through their uh through other wholesalers, right? But not directly through through uh their their uh, company. And um <clears throat> after the nineteenth century, after uh, at the turn of the twentieth century, Singer was already in more than twenty countries with this distribution system, not with the factory system, right? So uh, that's yeah. one of the points uh, of my book is that uh, we need to look more into other forms of um, of management, not only manufacturing, which is what uh, yeah. studies of uh, multinational corporations had focused on, uh, but also uh, about marketing and distribution, because this really is what uh, puts the corporation in contact with the consumer and in the case of Singer in contact with the local consumer right with uh right <laughs> with those and it's where women comes in too to, to get back to where yes. we you know we started earlier the the manufacturing story can be kind of very male dominated it's a story of dudes setting up production and stuff not that there's certainly women involved in the, that but um right but if we look at your story there's a lot more women involved right yes yes and not always so visible Right. That's yeah. then why the idea, I mean, focusing on on embroidery and sewing was so important because that's also the way I brought women in until I found them, <laughs> until I found them in yeah, the corporation. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Because they, one of the departments that um, there were women working in the manufacturing side uh, in the factories that were assembling and yeah. making and assembling sewing machines, but they were mostly in the sampling um, step. So at the end, when they had to uh, to try the, the machines and see if they worked, um, that's where I, I could um, document sing, uh, women working within the factory. But yeah. um, within the distribution system, and within the stores, they also were um, not so officially visible, uh, but they were part. They they were not so much sales women, right? They weren't going door to door, but they were part of the stores, right? Um, in every store, um, there had to be a woman, um, especially to do these demonstrations and uh, and to try to work the sewing machine with the customers. Uh, but also one very important um, part of my of my book is the exhibitions, right? And the exhibitions were could either be permanent or or temporary, and these were events um, that women prepared with, you know, um, kind of not just. Um, the word doesn't come out, not just once, but they were always making samples, right, to show other people. Yeah. And they were making samples and applying embroidery or sewing with the machine to their domestic um, tasks. And when it came the time to have an exhibition, they would decorate, they would, uh, they would prepare a, a nice showcase with all these, these uh, objects. So 
over time in ev- in mostly all the country all the countries that singer was part of um they created these exhibitions and uh that singer that women um uh organized and then um i was able to track uh, to document the creation of the art department, which is the embroidery department, uh, in the 1890s in the U.S., uh, which mm-hmm. and it was orga- it was created to organize the world's um, for the world's Colombian exhibition. Right. So after that, I don't have a specific business records about the department anymore. That's all. That's all we have. But we have yeah proof that there were thousands of exhibits uh, in all the stores and uh, also international exhibits after that. So I assume they continued to work um, on that, you know, doing that organization. But then in each of the countries, um, and specifically in Spain and Mexico, which I, I focused on, they had this, this um, departments they called, or in Spanish, uh, in Spain, for example, it was called Seccion de Bordados, which is uh, embroidery section, embroidery unit. And um, they organized for, um, to decorate window fronts, to um, be part of uh, exhibitions, but also um, with time more and more to have schools, right, as part of Singer. So they mm-hmm. had Singer schools were, um, and they provided the certifications that the government would require and things like that. What it made me think of is now, uh, I think, you know, as a product of like consumer capitalism and devices of the last 30 to 40 years and electronics and computing and all this, people, you know, analysts have become very focused on like subcultures and fandoms and uh, all the activities that other people are doing that kind of generate sales and loyalties to products, right? And so part of what I was interested in in, in your writing about this is kind of that culture, uh, definitely, uh, you know, pr- primarily organized by women, that's clear, of these exhibits and activities around the sewing machine and these activities and how much of it was singer, you know, and singer leading it or people... Mm-hmm. Versus just like, you know, in these local spaces, you have all these people. This is what they do. Right. right? And so, you know, I just wondered how how you ended up thinking about that balance of just like, you know, like sub, you know, like culture, subcultures of, mm-hmm. of activities and technologies around these things. Yeah, that's really interesting. I kept when I was in grad school and writing my dissertation, which the book is really my dissertation. Um, I kept looking, I kept um, reading these books about, um, well, books like uh, Michael Aras or uh, Mona Domos about how corporations kind of dominate, right, um, mm-hmm. through technology uh, or kind of how the West or uh, industrial nations became to be on top because of technology or pro- progress and things like, or uh, prowess or things like that. But yeah. Um, for me, it was really never like that. So, so first, the people I could talk to, or when I saw um, documents about talking about the sewing machine, first, like you say, they didn't mention Singer. Uh, if they were against the sewing machine, it wasn't Singer. It was just 
the idea of, uh, you know, producing, having to produce more, putting women outside the home, things like that. But um, I wanted to, and it's nice, it's good to see that you could read that in my book, is it wasn't that powerful, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. What was important yeah, exactly. is that, <laughs> what was important is yeah. that, exactly that culture of sewing, that culture that, yeah. that those practices and values associated with sewing and embroidery and the home and mm-hmm. being part of, um, of these life cycle moments when you could sew something and make it special and make it and give it, you know, no. give it as a gift. That was much more important. And so even though the sewing machine perhaps was criticized because it, um, it, undermined some previous skills you know that were hand you know um handmade um um techniques for example hand techniques they also didn't seem to get bothered by the idea that they could do the same with the sewing machine um so um so in that sense for me it was much more important to see how they integrated the sewing machine and how they um understood um so both of those ideas about the technology both being a bad thing and both being a great thing just lived side by side and i could see that constantly and sometimes when i even you know when i ask people if they knew where uh the singer sewing machine was based like you know if it was a american an american corporation or not they don't know they think it's an it's a spanish they think it's, you know, it's not, um, so all these ideas yeah. also about, um, uh, foreignness and, uh, reactions against, you know, that was, that is very much part of literature or of, um, later literature about Americanization and, and things like yeah. that, uh, in Europe, um, you don't see that with singer. You don't see that mm. at all. Uh, you see it in some cases like Japan, but it's later and it's because of labor disputes. So it's, you know, um, mm-hmm. that was very important for me to, 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 uh, explain because sometimes, um, that was also my way of giving agency to the women and the practices, right? Uh, it's not yep. always, the overarching, the overreaching multinational, uh, sometimes mm-hmm. <laughs> in this case. Yeah, yeah, no, it reminds, it, to me, it connected to my friends and colleagues who study technology in Latin America and other places, like Fabian Prieto Nanez, mm-hmm. who like looks at satellites and <laughs> D- Diana Montano does Correct. electrifying Mexico. I mean, when, when we start to look at how local places adopt technologies, it becomes much different than this kind of, Absolutely. uh, and and if we looked at Japan, what the story was there, we would find it has to do with local meanings and and con- contestations that were already there, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that would be the yeah, that's great. Can you say so? I wanted to back up, kind of back up for a second. It's like, how did you come to, um, you know, look at Spain and Mexico, and you know, what did you think focusing on the the two nations would get you, got you as an analyst? So. That is mostly because of going back to the corporation, right? So uh, Singer started um, the first place it goes out uh, with a subsidiary is the the UK, right? But um, with the distribution system, 
it goes and also Canada, but with the distribution system, it also starts going uh, out through Mexico to Mexico, right through the closers uh, in the border. But also, and so uh, in Europe, Spain was also a very early market. Um, so for for the sake of writing the history of the corporation abroad and mm-hmm. the history of this distribution system, both Spain and Mexico in the Hispanic market, both Spain and Mexico were first and uh, and the most important markets um, in the Hispanic world well into the 20th century, right? So uh, then we see um, South America coming in very strongly, but it's more after the 1920s that, you know, we can see um, a distribution system being uh, developed and things like that in, in places like Argentina or or um, Ecuador or or Peru. So not that the sewing machines or singer didn't get there um, until 1920s, but the system of distribution, I could not document it before that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about, just kind of in a kind of lit review, you know, kind of the literatures you're drawing on is um, this, I, I'm going to mention it to you before we kind of got going. Um, is this notion of kind of mediated consumption. So uh, I mentioned uh, Carolyn Goldstein's Creating Consumers is a really important book for me and has been for a long time. And I was just thinking about, you know, uh, you know, the relationship between firms and consumers. I, you know, I think that business historians have done a, a, a you know, have been writing about this for 20 years, mm-hmm. 20 or 30 years at this point, at some point. But I still think it's not a literature that's leaked out of that of business history Mm -hmm. into other areas and technology studies necessarily, uh, history of technology. So, yeah, I mean, how did you think about the firm's, how did the firm build relationship to consumers in these different places? Right. Um, So what you said is actually even more, it's even more true for the case of multinationals, right? If we look at international Mm -hmm. business history, these approach of trying to uh, see how the multinational connects with uh, with the, consum- the consumer is very, very um, lacking. <laughs> I don't know. Yes. I'm not, <laughs> right, so definitely there is not much done for the 19th century. Also uh-huh. because there is not um, a lot of... Uh, of firms, right? Um, working, yeah. uh, I mean, operating uh, at the, at that time, or at least following the uh, the definition of the firm as Mirabel, as the multinational, following the definition of the multinational firm that Mira Wilkins or um, or Jeff Jones have have provided. But mm-hmm. when you look again at this marketing. Uh, um operations you can see that in reality what you get is people from these places being part of the corporation and i think that's yeah. where i um that's how i wanted to portray singer in local markets because uh yes the uh the central office in Ciudad de Mexico or the central office in Madrid was uh, staffed by men and the main agent was, you know, a male agent that was directly 
designated by New York or maybe London. Um, but under him, there was, you know, it, it was all the Spaniards and there's a lot of, uh, of documentation about problems between uh, locals, uh, local agents and, and for example, um, the general agent in in Mexico, and there's also there were also lots of problems in the U.S. It's not it's not just Mexico or uh, <laughs> or Spain, and um, yeah. but this idea of of uh, you were asking about the consumer and the and the corporation, mm-hmm. uh, I think focusing on the store, focusing on those selling, focusing on those mm-hmm. practices. You need to know how they got their materials, how they got access to to the technology, how, and mm-hmm. just thinking about the messages that, the, and just thinking about the context in which in which these selling agents wanted to connect to the customer uh, or or the client is what gave me you know kind of sense of uh, that is all about right that relationship that you create with the yeah. last part of the production or or with the chain right (laughs) between yeah 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 uh, with the customer so um what i was also i have to say that um again i was studying multinationals at a time uh when i was younger than uh when i started my phd um i got very influenced by this notion of the corporation of specifically of the American corporation as being this really bad <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. organization that would destroy yeah. um destroy uh you know local markets destroy it would just become I mean come and just do whatever they wanted and this was you know the 90s and then the 2000s it was very yeah, yeah, much yeah. Seattle <laughs> right. the battle exactly. in Seattle right exactly. yeah exactly so, um <laughs> and I think I got you know being in Spain and being you know in a country that is not super rich and um yeah and I got a lot of foreign influence right after the uh, transition to democracy so those yeah. you know those kind of changes influence uh me my my perspective on multinationals but the more i look at how these organizations have to work in other countries yes they can have lots of obstacles with politics and governments and but when it comes to people they have to work with them <laughs> i mean it's and yeah and if 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 working with them means appealing with whatever whatever has to be like if you know yeah. now it can be you know whatever coca-cola is doing to make people drink coca-cola well that's already i mean they're they're doing it they're actually making people being part of that uh corporate culture which is uh and that kind of cultural practice that is drinking soda right um so mm-hmm. that was definitely more what i was looking after um when i was looking at sewing and uh the different materials that were prepared about sewing and embroidery you know how how did these people make sense of of a technology that yes was foreign yes was revolutionary but indeed was going to be part and was going to make a lot of sense within their within their cultures yeah that that, that sets me up perfectly for my next question for you is it can you give us a sense of you know what um 
kind of the cultures of sewing and embroidery practices were in Spain and, and Mexico before the introduction? Because part of your point is that there's all these norms and ideals caught up around these practices. And those norms and ideals are deeper than the, the machine, right? Mm-hmm. So what, what was going on with sewing and right. embroidery already? Yes, and that's really important uh, because and now I'm actually writing about machine embroidery and I'm seeing how this standardization and, and ho- um, homogenization of sewing practices and, and, and patterns and designs, it actually came before machine embroidery. Um, mm, beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in my in the book, I go back all the way to the sixteenth century, uh, because I could see how, at that time, when educators or Christian, you know, moralists, writing about what the proper um, woman should do and how she should behave and how she should educate um, her daughters, um, they start mentioning sewing constantly and so they say you know sewing is this very um great activity uh that makes Mm. you uh not be doing nothing and at the same time it uh, it you are being creative because you're Mm. um creating beautiful things and it um and who knows if you ever need it (laughs) you can actually sell your products or you can actually be part of the market and uh, contribute to your household's um, um, income. And so mm-hmm. that happens in the... So it's very much linked to Christianity as well, to morality. It makes, you know, it's a moral thing to know. It's, it makes women honorable. It makes um, them be uh, constantly occupied on something yeah. that is going to create you know, good, uh, nice um, artistic products, but also something representative of their place in society, which is as, you know, as uh, household managers or as yeah. women of the home. And when you go, um, you know, 18th century, it, it starts being that part when um, that, defines sewing as something as a skill that you could also uh, use for the market becomes even more important right but it becomes important Mm -hmm. in the sense that um that you could do it in the home as well Uh, so you don't need Mm -hmm. to be um um to be part of this uh kind of grow uh growing um, middle class, well, it's just, middle class is just a big word for 19th century Spain, but, um, you know, the burgeoning and being part of that uh, economic growth, you could actually do it from home. And still, if you didn't have to go out and work the sewing machine in the factory, you could still uh, do it in the home. Yeah. So um, reformers and, you know, and also education, um, Officers in the nineteenth century starts start also um, taking this uh, approach and start saying, "Well, if you're uh, going to educate girl, girls, you have to include sewing because it's such mm-hmm. an it's, a, it's such a good activity for them. They make um, they you teach them um, a skill, but also you teach them that um, 
that they are part of the home because, you know, at the end of the day, sewing and embroidery, you're going to sew to decorate your home or you're going to sew to to decorate the clothes that you're going to give uh, to your daughter who is getting married. So it's everything is all of the activities, all the practices, all the values kind of go back to this idea of the family, of the home, of, you know, uh, of this domesticity uh, that is so uh, much um, valued, right, uh, in the 19th mm-hmm. century. So um, that goes uh, in the 19th century. And I could see how sewing kind of renovates itself. <laughs> and so it, it was a very good thing for aristocratic women in the 16th century. It becomes a really good thing for all social um for the entire social spectrum in the uh, 19th century, uh, because also for those going to the factory, at least you're sewing, right? Um, is something that will also uh, allow you to to get uh, income or or be. But then in the 20th century, when we see more the ideals about the independent women and the new women, uh, modern woman, and you know things, it it also it, it's okay as well because. It uh it not only represents the home, but it represents um so then it becomes kind of the uh a sign or um a model for the independent woman because they can do they can be by themselves, they can get their own business, they can be entrepreneurs with sewing and in the house <laughs> and in the home. Mm-hmm. So it's all um it kind of renovates uh yeah. but still persists uh you know in this idea of in this relationship to the home and and domesticity and uh, the way i finish my book is that you know we see this in 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 current um in modern firms in modern uh so etsy for example kind of (laughs) goes back to that idea right uh there are Mm -hmm. there's this um emphasis on this um celebration of the home and of doing it yourself um as part of other ideas of uh independent entrepreneurship or um being by yourself or i mean just you know or singer sing um uh creating your own business and things like that yeah totally yeah, I think you put it at a, at one point you said something like that, you know, women had their own dreams. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And that does yeah, the sewing machine happened to fit into the way they were dreaming about their lives <laughs> and their futures. Right. I have another section that is, you know, this idea and connects to the corporationness. Um I mean what the what we were talking about, Americanization and corporations being overreaching or not, is you know, yeah. Um, Spaniards had these expectations and dreams to be modern. So why not, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, we tend to see other cultures as original cultures, and and you know they, no, but perhaps no, no. that's not the case. In you know, perhaps there is the yeah, that's the case in all, a lot of aspects. But you know, in terms of capitalism and how it has worked, um, you know, with with um less developed nations you know whether it surprises us or not <laughs> that's you know it's okay yeah 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 <laughs> again i think we have to study how people in these places 
how their dreams worked, you know, and that they're off, they're often different than American dreams, but that doesn't mean they don't involve these very modern technologies. Right. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Julio yeah. Moreno puts it very well in his book, right? Um, don't junkie, don't go home. I mean, not because we yeah. think that that traditions get undermined, which they probably do. Um, sure. Doesn't mean that there is a good, uh, you know, part of the population that actually wants to. <laughs> yeah, totally. I heard you earlier, like, you know, singers, this a very important multinational in this earlier period, you know, and has much more reach than so many other companies, mm -hmm. including the early auto companies. You know, I mean, they're, they're just so much more reach than these firms. Um, so, uh, you know, how did Singer initially move into Spain and Mexico? Mm -hmm. And I was also hoping, as you explained that, I mean, you know, if it's helpful to do it in two parts, whatever, but I'm also interested in this notion of collective entrepreneurship, mm. which it was the first time I bumped into it, but I found it very helpful. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> Singer enters the first Singer store in Spain I could, um, I have a, a source for is 18... 73 and it's a store in wow. Sevilla and that is it is so Seville or Sevilla is in the south of Spain it's very mm -hmm. it was very surprising to me and it it is still very surprising to me that it hasn't and I have not found one store earlier than that in Madrid but you know that's what it mm -hmm. is uh, so there might have been but I haven't found the document for it um but before that uh so that's super early right uh before that, and perhaps around that time, Singer sewing machines would be sold in larger um, wholesalers. They would sell okay. other machines as, as well. They would sell also German sewing machines, and mm -hmm. they would sell mm -hmm. uh, other American uh, uh, sewing machines. The same thing happened in, um, in Mexico, but in Mexico, is, it is a little different because they, Singer kind of made a, con uh, well, they made a contract with Casa Boker, which was a wholesaler. Um, and they, and Casa Boker actually agrees with Singer to only sell Singer sewing machines. Okay. Um, but of course, Singer could not control whether or not other wholesalers could sell sewing their machines mm -hmm. somewhere else mm -hmm. um so in mexico singer stays with casa Boker for a long time at the same time it has um it has it starts opening its own stores uh to try to control the market a little bit more and um it starts um and also it sells machines through the border uh you know through the office in san antonio and you know there's not a clear line between at the beginning between what uh you know where the stores where the sewing machines were sold uh in the kind of northern part of Mexico and you know this is 1860s yeah. 1870s is is still okay. very very close to to the to the war to the war between uh the United the United States and Mexico, um but mm -hmm. in Spain, very early the company 
starts opening stores and um, starts not selling to those wholesalers and actually looking for wholesalers that are selling singers or machines and telling them not to do so. Um, by the 1890s, um, in both countries, with the entry of President uh, Frederick Bourne of, uh, of Singer, they, uh, both countries, along with other countries, have uh, this mandate, I guess, from the United States that only Singer can sell singers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what happens since 1892 or three. Um, Casa Boker no longer has this loyal loyalty agreement with Singer. And Singer starts opening what they call in Mexico are encargadurías, which are not depots, but kind of bigger offices. Like, so not the central mm -hmm. office, but kind of under the central office. And they open encargadurías in almost every state. Um, and then each encargaduría would have uh, perhaps seven, depending on, on how much, uh, how high, um, how large the population of that area would be. They would have either three stores or more stores or... But in, uh, the same thing happened in Spain. And um, but what was very important in both countries uh, was this, the, the figure of the selling agent. They would be the ones going to the more rural locations. Yeah, yeah. And in both, in both countries, the amount of sales um, that were registered before the turn of the 20th century really surprised the um the executives they said they write in their correspondence that it is just amazing how well sales are going given that both you know both spain and mexico are considered really poor countries like there's not right. enough income in these countries in their view to really buy this um this expensive technology but by that time by that time um the technology was not that expensive anymore, but also um, this uh, system of leasing, which consistent, consisted of a contract um, by which the client or the purchaser would pay every week. Um, and I have calculated it took between one and two years to pay for it, uh, depending on how much you know money uh, the the first payment would have been. Um, this had a lot of, uh, of um, it attracted a lot of, lots of purchases and clients in both uh, countries. The, um, the leasing, um, the installment payments um, option. So by then, um, that's, you know, by then the system is created. And after that, um, it kind of never changed much. It just stayed with the stores, the uh, offices, and uh, neither country had um, had a factory um, in their uh -huh. history, uh, which didn't happen with places like Brazil or Argentina. Both both uh, countries uh, in the twentieth century, Brazil, and later in the twentieth century, Argentina. Although the case of Argentina, I don't know if it's a manufacturing factory or it's an assembling factory. So uh, I'm not. 100% sure. But um, in neither Spain nor Mexico, um, Singer created, a, I mean, opened 
uh, feng shui in its history. Hmm. Um, we we talked a bit before about um, that you know you mentioned that there was in eighteen nineties there was a form of this art department. Um, or later, it's also called the embroidery department. Yeah. It seems to be called, and then later it's renamed the education department. Um, what do what do you feel like? What did focusing on this organizational unit or this set of activities kind of allow you to see in this story? <clears throat> well, so um, that was for me kind of the view of this idea of the gendered corporation, right? Uh, we tend to think about um, big organizations or corporations in this case, kind of emanating effects. <laughs> like, uh, yes. um, let, me, let me explain right. myself. Like, um, perhaps, you know, there is a, a big um, effect on gender practices there's a, a big effect yeah. on labor there's a big but what about back to the corporation and, and the feedback mechanism exactly right? exactly so that's yeah. also that's how i see this i mean the way or the perspective or the view that this department uh gave me and um and when i looked at this department so the art department that was also randomly called the embroidery department uh, then becomes the education department. And, it, and the education yeah. department doesn't forget about embroidery, right? They continue right, 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 right. to teach about embroidery. They print all these manuals with embroidery designs yeah. and instructions. And um, so it continues. But it's, what I was saying before is this domesticity and gender um, norms being part of the corporation. That's where I yep. saw that that evolution yep. of from being industriousness to being the uh, independent um, woman, that's where I saw mm -hmm. it within the corporation as well. Yep. Um, no, it's really pretty. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. And then I also wanted to uh, make uh, kind of go back to your earlier question about collective entrepreneurship. And um, yeah. that was a concept I read about um in the work of Christina Lubinsky, specifically, and Dan okay. Wadani, uh, this idea, you know, for me within the corporation was the uh, kind of the locals kind of taking over the system yeah. that Singer was able to provide <laughs> and making yeah, yeah, it yeah. their own, you know, kind of um, dream, right? What's like we were yeah. talking about before, because owning. Um, or not owning, but but because it's not a franchise, a fran is it franchise or franchise? Yeah. franchise. It's not yeah, a yeah, franchise yeah. really, uh, right. because the person that was manager of a store never owned that store. Right. Um, it didn't even have an agreement to, to kind of do what. No, they were employees of Singer. Um, yeah. But it's still, uh, the way I see them. Uh, you know, talking about the store, talking about Singer, talking about being part of a corporation, I see them as their own um, project. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and they're caught up, right? I mean, you can almost think of a, you know, in, in, for many of these people, you can think of the sewing machine as a kind of capital good. Mm -hmm. 
they're doing their own thing. They're making objects sometimes for the market or just for themselves. And it's caught up in all these local activities, right? Mm -hmm. That are business beyond the firm. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, and, but there's also these feedback mechanisms into the company. So I think I see the collective entrepreneurship thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Singer's there. It's a dealership. It's not a franchise. Mm -hmm. And yet it's really caught up in this collective set of local activities that, that is kind of much richer than just this vision of like, yeah, the, the top down yes. corporation, like shooting things out at people and like <laughs> influencing them or something like that. Right. Yeah. Which is also like this very male disseminating. You know? um, it is I... so ma- it's, it's a very male vision. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my unfortunate hand gestures there. But, yeah. <laughs> I do too. Have yeah. Those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, you know, can I also just kind of can you kind of kind of give me a, a sense of like um so you know part of this collective entrepreneurship thing going on is there's all these creation of manuals mm-hmm. again which some of them would have been coming from singers, some of them would have been coming from other places. Mm-hmm. And there's these exhibits mm-hmm. and contests organized. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all these activities, right? So, can you give us a sense of like what an exhibit was like i mean did you ever find images or mm-hmm. just descriptions of what what were what were these exhibits like just to give people a yes that's a great it. question um so yes there's a lot of images and i'm gonna take this moment to talk about sources because at some yeah. point when i started research uh and actually when i finished my dissertation i did not know about this source which is a marketing public relations kind of publication by singer but it was only published in the uk and so i didn't know about it um i had talked to scholars that were very well known and that knew about singer and they said no no wisconsin historical society it has everything in you know Mm -hmm. um organization related well, it turns out um, I was doing a postdoctoral uh, fellowship in Berlin and I had two weeks of research time in Glasgow. I wanted to go to Glasgow and see what was left of the uh, huge, absolutely enormous factory um, setting that Singer had built in the uh, 1880s, 1870s, 1880s. And um and then, which was destroyed by by now. I mean, it's, it's, it just doesn't exist anymore. But um, when I went there, I went to the local library and I said, do you have anything about Singer? And they said, sure, we have. Let me, let me count mentally. We have, let's say, 40 volumes <laughs> of this public relations marketing magazine that was fed by the different offices around the world and uh, that were sending images and pictures and text about their operations. And also, but it was mostly focused, you know, perhaps half of the publication was British and then the rest was foreign. Yeah. Um, so, well, then those two weeks, that's all I did. I was I just took pictures, <laughs> pictures, pictures. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was wonderful because that actually, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of Mm. presented me with that view that we were talking about, like there was a real system. There was a real organization Mm. within Singer, uh, which was not, which is definitely not part of the official or at least the kind of written business record that I had uh, 
researched in the Wisconsin at the Wisconsin Historical Society, which is where um singer archives are the singer archives are. And so um there I could see all these activities. There were little exhibits and large exhibits. These exhibits mm-hmm. were um perhaps what we would you know um the size it could go from the size of a kitchen a small kitchen to the size of mm-hmm. a big house and usually what they put on display was um small accessories or objects that had been of course made with a sewing machine but they were all they were all like home um like objects right so there were pillowcases mm-hmm. there were cushions there were curtains there were tablecloths there were if mm. there was if there were dresses and things like that mostly there were they were um like doll size right um okay <laughs> um there were um, napkins that uh, it's just like all you can think yeah, yeah, yeah. that you can give as a gift you know to the newborn or to the newlyweds or mm-hmm. um and so that's on that side all those objects usually came from the stores, which uh, were actually on exhibit permanently on their window fronts or even, you know, inside the store. Um, and then these um, concursos or um, contests, they I saw those more uh, frequently for, for South America. So mm-hmm, singer mm-hmm. schools would have courses. And so at the end mm-hmm. of one of these courses, the girls would, um, the students, which were girls, mm-hmm. would, um, exit, would um, display their, what they had done during that course. And so there were contests yeah. that were also sponsored by the government and um mm-hmm. or by public schools and and things like that these content so all these um exhibitions were mostly focused on embroidery i even though mm-hmm. there is a big push for dressmaking and the schools mm-hmm. um for especially in the us are mostly for dressmaking um this kind of put uh to show are mm-hmm. usually embroidery they're not so much, um, you know, um, mm. the result of of uh, dressmaking. Hmm. So, and do you have a do you have a sense of why that is? I mean, was it just embroidery became a space of hmm. um, contest, or it was just an established genre or something? So, embroidery, I um, was in the set was really into when I look at it more in the in more practical terms it's kind of the introduction to any sewing right so yeah you can, right sure you can the first the stitches you always you're really making embroidery it's just the stitches yeah. if you give it a design then it's, it's yep you know it could be considered art or creative or but um so yeah. i that could be one reason. The other reason is perhaps dressmaking um, was more uh, part of vocational schools, but also yeah. kind of higher level. Like if you were really mm-hmm. into it and was going to, uh, and you were going to work as part of a um, department store, or you were going to create your own business as a dressmaker, then so it's much more 
you know, that I'm not entirely yeah. sure, but uh, I think that's, you know, you could show also this side, this artistic side more yes. clearly with embroidery than than with, um, yeah. plus that kind of home feeling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Well, my daughter's been taking, uh, my nine-year-old daughter's been taking sewing classes recently, yeah. making doll clothes, just as you said. And, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that I was just kind of reading it through that experience. I can definitely see how this become a kind of space of achievement and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, concepts of self and such. Is she, sure. is she using the sewing machine? Is she using a sewing machine? Yeah, Good. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I haven't <laughs> been able to really master it at all. I, can, I know how to use it, but I am not good at it um and recently i yeah. i'm taking on um embroidery and it's much easier okay. um but it's also it's yeah it's very i mean it's easier to do what i'm doing which is not <laughs> not yeah. being super intricate or or special your last chapter is titled uh, female economies in the era of global capitalism and i saw you kind of a, trying to achieve like couple different ends in that so i just want to what you know what give uh, listeners a sense of like some of the things you're trying to do there as you you bring the book it's the last chapter before the conclusion so yeah what are we trying to do there um <clears throat> i think my uh main point in that um in that chapter is that after decades of uh you know making this relationship between home and sewing and embroidery um, even though domesticity ideas ideals change, um, they continue to inform uh, these practices of sewing. And so, um, but it's also about politics. So when you know when political changes happen in both countries, um, and they especially that chapter talks about Mexico because Spain would be a little later with the Spanish Civil War and the um, beginning of the dictatorship. Um, is that they also try to modernize what it is to be, a, you know, the definitions of uh, women in, in the modern era. And when they do, they keep these relationships, right? They keep the idea that women are better at home-related um, home activities, that um, following uh, ideologies of domesticity, which, you know, which um, could mean, which they could relate, also, could also be related to independence and, and the modern woman um, in the case of Mexico. That chapter talked about the idea of the modista in casa or sewing uh, at home as both being part of um, political ideologies that emphasize Catholic um, values uh, about mm -hmm. you know the the about women being still part of the home and being uh, and needed to be part of the home, but also more left wing um, ideologies mm -hmm. that start to to erase, especially in the after the nineteen twenties in 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 Mexico. Uh, but also in this case in Spain in the 1920s and 30s, although then it's going to be kind of um, um, 
deleted by the dictatorship. But you could see also in the dictatorship how sewing and this idea of domesticity is just mm -hmm. going to revive again, you know, have, um, mm -hmm. leave a revival once again. Uh, so my goal is to, is in that chapter, is to show how it is so, it's such a malleable um, ideology, but also set of values and virtues that sewing in the home can provide to this uh, bigger um, ideologies of gender that in both Spain and Mexico are going to kind of change in the 1920s and 30s, very much linked with changes in politics and changes in regimes. Um, and in both places, both uh, magazines and singer and uh, schools, they continue, there is a continuity of um, this promotion of sewing, either for independence, but also for um, kind of keeping that uh, traditional mm -hmm. um, norm or traditional set of um, values that, that uh, women would have um, bear in, you know, with a more traditional ideologies of domesticity. Yeah, yeah. No, I love it. I mean, it's another way you're kind of challenging the the literature is because it's just like, you know, I think we when you look at the 20th century and sewing and clothing and all these things, it's always about mechanization and, you know, the rise of like pre-made stuff and, you know, these lives we lead. And eventually it goes to fast fashion and all this stuff. But it's like, you know, I think you're challenging, uh, you know, that that simple vision of linear change, because it's like, well, actually, like these these visions, they stick around for all kinds of reasons and become important. Right. At different moments. I see them know? as very fluid. And, you know, if for for one set of uh, one sector of the population or they mean, you know, morality and and. Yeah. all sorts of virtues related to the home and the home and as this uh, super, uh, as a sanctuary, right? Uh, but for the other sector of society, um, those that want to, you know, to be, you know, those women that um, went to vocational, vocation, you know, to their, um, mm -hmm. to school, to trade schools, to be, to have their own businesses or to just work uh, or, or know more skills, they also, you know, it also works for right. them, right? So, right, um, right. there is this book skills. about, right? There is this book about, um, by <laughs> uh, it's called Patriarchy Reinventing Patriarchy. Um, let me, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, about Brazil, mm -hmm. and that's kind of the structure. I will, I will find the book and, and let you know. Uh, it, and it's about mm -hmm. how it gets you know, reinvented um, over time. But still, mm -hmm. you know, at the end of the day, we see the, um, we see the same power and hierarchy, um, you know, being enforced, which is, you know, mm -hmm. um, women's place in, in, in business and in work and in society as, you know, as not equal. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you're doing, you do a lot of different things. Uh, and so I would understand if you don't have time to think about this right now, but is there a next historical project for you or do you know where you go, where you would go next? Uh, 
So as you know, I'm not uh I'm not part of a history department as a tenure track um mm-hmm. professor, so I don't have the pressure of <laughs> jumping yeah. into another project. But I'm yeah. still very uh, you know, I'm very interested in um in in business history, in international business history, and I'm very interested in these relations that happened between the corporations and society. Mm-hmm. And so um that's where I am heading. I'm also very interested and I don't see lots of research coming out about it, about gender and multinationals. I still don't see, um, you know, developments into, into, um, knowing why there is still perhaps, uh, uh, a difference and, uh, in, you know, in the role of women in business or perhaps a difference between, I mean, um, uh, a gap, uh, a gender gap in within corporate boards and things like that. I am interested in knowing why historically, historically, why it's that. Um, and mm-hmm. I think in terms of of uh, um, using gender to analyze um, kind of how historically those hierarchies. Um, you know, have been there uh, will help us actually know how we can tackle uh, the hierarchies and the differences that still define, mm-hmm. you know, the corporate world and 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 business. Mm-hmm. One of the many things you do, which I think really is important, is that you're the co-editor of and chief of of the New Books Network podcast, uh, New Books Network in Espanol, right? Mm-hmm. And so, can you give can you give listeners a little sense of what that is? And yeah, yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, so New Books Network in Espanol is part of the New Books Network, uh, which I started being a host a few years ago. I thought it was an incredible um, initiative, and uh, its editor Marshall Poe really provides. Um, a, an amazing opportunity for a lot of people, not only as scholars, to kind of put um, a scholarship and a scholarly work out there, um, but also for a kind of a more general audience. And yeah. so when I uh, began, I thought, how, you know, um, there has to be some, there wasn't anything like it in Spanish. And so I directly approached the editor and I asked him if uh, if he would be interested in doing it. And he was, mm-hmm. he was right away very interested. And um, it's been almost two years. Uh, we don't have, like, I think New Books Network has over 500 hosts. We do not have 500 hosts, but we have around 100, which is very good. Um, wow, that's great. Yes. That's and so great. Use, and actually, it's very interesting because the uh, our larger audience is in the U.S. <laughs> so, um, really, yes. Even mm. though, so Spain is also in you know the mm. it's very high, uh, but and Mexico and um, and Japan for some reason <laughs> there must be okay, yeah. a big uh, Hispanic yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, community there, but or uh, mm-hmm. so but. We do exactly the same as, as New Books Network in Espanol. We um, encourage hosts to interview um, scholars that have just published uh, mm-hmm. 
academic books and also we are doing uh fiction and non-fiction uh more trade okay. books and um cool yeah it's going well and i invite everyone to listen to it that uh understands the spanish to listen to it and contribute to it <laughs> it's wonderful you know I'm, i've been thinking about it a lot in kind of terms of global technology studies and you know like i said i have colleagues who kind of work on that space mm -hmm. and Well, thinking about how we need, uh, you know, more and better platforms for having those conversations and getting word out about that work. But I think part of that has to be doing podcasts in mm -hmm. other language, you know, mm -hmm. and, and to make it build those connections. So hats off to you and your colleagues for doing it. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I've, I saw this number, but in about two decades, um, perhaps the population that speaks Spanish in the U.S. is going to be <laughs> over <Yeah. laughs> the, the population. That... This does not phase me or bother me at all. <laughs> I'm like, bring it on. Sounds good. Exactly. I'll try so, to play catch up. <laughs> these kind of projects yeah. are, yeah. They're important. Mm -hmm. Paula, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. You can reach us with questions, comments, and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or by following me on Twitter at STS underscore news or on YouTube at people's things. Our podcast is distributed by the New Books Network, the leading platform for academic podcasts, so that you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Peoples and Things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Joe Fort is the producer for the podcast, and Mandy Lamb is the production assistant. This podcast and other Peoples and Things programming are produced in affiliation with Virginia Tech Publishing and supported by the Center for Humanities and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. For the entire Peoples and Things team, I am Lee Vinsel. And most importantly, I want to thank you for listening. Thanks. <laughs>